The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Martin Clifton for LibriVox.org. Chapter 3 The Soul of the Schoolboy. A large map of London would be needed to display the wild and zigzag course of one day's journey undertaken by an uncle and his nephew, or to speak more truly, of a nephew and his uncle, for the nephew, a schoolboy on a holiday, was in theory the god in the car, or in the cab, tram, tube, and so on, while his uncle was at most a priest dancing before him and offering sacrifices. To put it more soberly, the schoolboy had something of the stolid air of a young duke doing the grand tour, while his elderly relative was reduced to the position of a courier, who nevertheless had to pay for everything like a patron. The schoolboy was officially known as Summers Minor, and in a more social manner as Stinks, the only public tribute to his career as an amateur photographer and electrician. The uncle was the Reverend Thomas Twyford, a lean and lively old gentleman with a red, eager face and white hair. He was, in the ordinary way, a country clergyman, but he was one of those who achieve the paradox of being famous in an obscure way, because they are famous in an obscure world. In a small circle of ecclesiastical archaeologists, who were the only people who could even understand one another's discoveries, he occupies a recognised and respectable place and a critic might have found even in that day's journey at least as much of the uncle's hobby as of the nephew's holiday. His original purpose had been wholly paternal and festive, but like many other intelligent people he was not above the weakness of playing with a toy to amuse himself on the theory that it would amuse a child. His toys were crowns and mitres and croziers and swords of state and he had lingered over them, telling himself that the boy ought to see all the sights of London. And at the end of the day, after a tremendous tea, he rather gave the game away by winding up with a visit in which hardly any human boy could be conceived as taking an interest. An underground chamber, supposed to have been a chapel, recently excavated on the north bank of the Thames, and containing literally nothing whatever but one old silver coin. But the coin, to those who knew, was more solitary and splendid than the Koh-i-Noor. It was Roman, and was said to bear the head of St. Paul, and round it raged the most vital controversies about the ancient British church. It could hardly be denied, however, that the controversies left Summers Minor comparatively cold. Indeed, the things that interested Summers Minor, and the things that did not interest him, had mystified and amused his uncle for several hours. He exhibited the schoolboy's startling ignorance and startling knowledge, knowledge of some special classification in which he can generally correct and confound his elders. He considered himself entitled, at Hampton Court on a holiday, to forget the very names of Cardinal Wolsey or William of Orange, but he could hardly be dragged from some details about the arrangement of the electric bells in the neighbouring hotel. He was solidly dazed by Westminster Abbey which is not so unnatural since that church became the lumber room of the larger and less successful statuary of the 18th century. But he had a magic and minute knowledge of the Westminster omnibuses, and indeed of the whole omnibus system of London, the colours and numbers of which he knew as a herald knows heraldry. He would cry out against a momentary confusion between a light green Paddington and a dark green Bayswater vehicle, as his uncle would at the identification of a Greek icon and a Roman image. Do you collect omnibuses like stamps? asked his uncle. They must need a rather large album, or do you keep them in your locker? I keep them in my head, replied the nephew, with legitimate firmness. It does you credit, I admit, replied the clergyman. I suppose it were vain to ask for what purpose you've learned that out of a thousand things. There hardly seems to be a career in it, unless you could be permanently on the pavement to prevent old ladies getting into the wrong bus. Well, we must get out of this one, for this is our place. I want to show you what they call St. Paul's Penny. Is it like St. Paul's Cathedral? asked the youth, with resignation, as they alighted. At the entrance, their eyes were arrested by a singular figure evidently hovering there with a similar anxiety to enter. It was that of a dark, thin man in a long, black robe, rather like a cassock, but the black cap on his head was of too strange a shape to be a biretta. 
It suggested rather some archaic headdress of Persia or Babylon. He had a curious black beard appearing only at the corners of his chin, and his large eyes were oddly set in his face, like the flat, decorative eyes painted in old Egyptian profiles. Before they had gathered more than a general impression of him, he had dived into the doorway that was their own destination. Nothing could be seen above ground of the sunken sanctuary except a strong wooden hut of the sort recently run up for many military and official purposes, the wooden floor of which was indeed a mere platform over the excavated cavity below. A soldier stood as sentry outside, and a superior soldier, an Anglo-Indian officer of distinction, sat writing at the desk inside. Indeed, the sightseers soon found that this particular site was surrounded with the most extraordinary precautions. I have compared the silver coin to the Koh-i-Noor, and in one sense it was conventionally comparable, since, by a historical accident, it was at one time almost counted among the crown jewels, or at least the crown relics, until one of the royal princes publicly restored it to the shrine to which it was supposed to belong. Other causes combined to concentrate official vigilance upon it. There had been a scare about spies carrying explosives in small objects, and one of those experimental orders which pass like waves over bureaucracy had decreed first that all visitors should change their clothes for a sort of official sackcloth, and then, when this method caused some murmurs, that they should at least turn out their pockets. Colonel Morris, the officer in charge, was a short, active man with a grim and leathery face, but a lively and humorous eye, a contradiction borne out by his conduct, for he at once derided the safeguards and yet insisted on them. I don't care a button myself for Paul's penny or such things, he admitted in answer to some antiquarian openings from the clergyman who was slightly acquainted with him. But I wear the king's coat, you know, and it's a serious thing when the king's uncle leaves a thing here with his own hands under my charge. But as for saints and relics and things, I fear I'm a bit of a Voltairian, what you'd call a sceptic. I'm not sure it's even sceptical to believe in the royal family and not in the holy family, replied Mr. Twyford. But of course I can easily empty my pockets to show I don't carry a bomb. The little heap of the parson's possessions, which he left on the table, consisted chiefly of papers, over and above a pipe and a tobacco pouch and some Roman and Saxon coins. The rest were catalogues of old books and pamphlets, like one entitled The Use of Serum, one glance at which was sufficient both for the colonel and the schoolboy. They could not see the use of serum at all. The contents of the boys' pockets naturally made a larger heap, and included marbles, a ball of string, an electric torch, a magnet, a small catapult, and, of course, a large pocket-knife, almost to be described as a small toolbox, a complex apparatus on which he seemed disposed to linger, pointing out that it included a pair of nippers, a tool for punching holes in wood, and, above all, an instrument for taking stones out of a horse's hoof. The comparative absence of any horse he appeared to regard as irrelevant, as if it were a mere appendage easily supplied. But when the turn came of the gentleman in the black gown, he did not turn out his pockets, but merely spread out his hands. I have no possessions, he said. I'm afraid I must ask you to empty your pockets and make sure, observed the colonel gruffly. I have no pockets, said the stranger. Mr. Twyford was looking at the long black gown with a learned eye. Are you a monk? he asked, in a puzzled fashion. I am a magus, replied the stranger. You have heard of the magi, perhaps? I am a magician. Oh, I say, exclaimed Summers Minor, with prominent eyes. But I was once a monk, went on the other. I am what you would call an escaped monk. Yes, I have escaped into eternity. But the monks held one truth at least, that the highest life should be without possessions. I have no pocket money and no pockets, and all the stars are my trinkets. They are out of reach anyhow, observed Colonel Morris, in a tone which suggested that it was well for them. I have known a good many magicians myself in India, mango plant and all, but the Indian ones are all frauds, I'll swear. In fact, I had a good deal of fun showing them up, more fun than I have over this dreary job anyhow. But here comes Mr. Simon, who will show you over the old cellar downstairs. Mr. Simon, the official guardian and guide, was a young man, prematurely grey, 
with a grave mouth which contrasted curiously with a very small dark moustache with waxed points that seemed somehow separate from it as if a black fly had settled on his face he spoke with the accent of oxford and the permanent official but in as dead a fashion as the most indifferent hired guide they descended a dark stone staircase at the floor of which simon pressed a button and a door opened on a dark room or rather a room which had an instant before been dark for almost as the heavy iron door swung open an almost blinding glaze of electric lights filled the whole interior the fitful enthusiasm of stinks at once caught fire and he eagerly asked if the lights and the door worked together yes it's all one system replied simon it was all fitted up for the day his royal highness deposited the thing here you see it's locked up behind a glass case exactly as he left it a glance showed that the arrangements for guarding the treasure were indeed as strong as they were simple a single pane of glass cut off one corner of the room in an iron framework let into the rock walls and the wooden roof above there was now no possibility of reopening the case without elaborate labour except by breaking the glass which would probably arouse the night watchman who was always within a few feet of it even if he had fallen asleep a close examination would have shown many more ingenious safeguards but the eye of the reverend thomas twyford at least was already riveted on what interested him much more the dull silver disc which shone in the white light against a plain background of black velvet st paul's penny said to commemorate the visit of st paul to britain was probably preserved in this chapel until the eighth century simon was saying in his clear but colourless voice in the ninth century it was supposed to have been carried away by the barbarians and it reappears after the conversion of the northern goths in the possession of the royal family of gothland his royal highness the duke of gothland retained it always in his own private custody and when he decided to exhibit it to the public placed it here with his own hand it was immediately sealed up in such a manner unluckily at this point summers minor whose attention had somewhat strayed from the religious wars of the ninth century caught sight of a short length of wire appearing in a broken patch in the wall he precipitated himself at it calling out i say does that connect it was evident that it did connect for no sooner had the boy given it a twitch than the whole room went black as if they had all been struck blind and an instant afterward they heard the dull crash of the closing door well you've done it now said simon in his tranquil fashion then after a pause he added i suppose they'll miss us sooner or later and no doubt they can get it open but it may take some little time there was a silence and then the unconquerable stinks observed rotten that i had to leave my electric torch i think said his uncle with restraint that we're sufficiently convinced of your interest in electricity then after a pause he remarked more amiably i suppose if i regretted any of my own impedimenta it would be the pipe though as a matter of fact it's not much fun smoking in the dark everything seems different in the dark everything is different in the dark said a third voice that of the man who called himself a magician it was a very musical voice and rather in contrast with his sinister and swarthy visage which was now invisible perhaps you don't know how terrible a truth that is all you see are pictures made by the sun faces and furniture and flowers and trees the things themselves may be quite strange to you something else may be standing now where you saw a table or a chair the face of your friend may be quite different in the dark a short indescribable noise broke the stillness twyford started for a second and then said sharply really i don't think it's a suitable occasion for trying to frighten a child who's a child cried the indignant summers with a voice that had a crow but also something of a crack in it and who's a funk either not me i will be silent then said the other voice out of the darkness but silent also makes and unmakes the required silence remained unbroken for a long time until at last the clergyman said to simon in a low voice i suppose it's all right about air oh yes replied the other aloud there's a fireplace and a chimney in the office just by the door a bound and the noise of a falling chair told them that the irrepressible rising generation had once more thrown itself across the room 
They heard the ejaculation, A chimney! Why, I'll be... And the rest was lost in muffled but exultant cries. The uncle called repeatedly and vainly, groped his way at last to the opening, and, peering up it, caught a glimpse of a disk of daylight, which seemed to suggest that the fugitive had vanished in safety. Making his way back to the group by the glass case, he fell over the fallen chair and took a moment to collect himself again. He had opened his mouth to speak to Simon when he stopped and suddenly found himself blinking in the full shock of the white light, and looking over the other man's shoulder, he saw that the door was standing open. So they've got us out at last, he observed to Simon. The man in the black robe was leaning against the wall some yards away with a smile carved on his face. Here comes Colonel Morris, went on Twyford, still speaking to Simon. One of us will have to tell him how the light went out. Will you? But Simon still said nothing. He was standing as still as a statue and looking steadily at the black velvet behind the glass screen. He was looking at the black velvet because there was nothing else to look at. St. Paul's penny was gone. Colonel Morris entered the room with two new visitors. Presumably two new sightseers delayed by the accident. The foremost was a tall, fair, rather languid-looking man with a bald brow and a high-bridged nose. His companion was a younger man with light curly hair and frank and even innocent eyes. Simon scarcely seemed to hear the newcomers. It seemed almost as if he had not realised that the return of the light revealed his brooding attitude. Then he started in a guilty fashion, and when he saw the elder of the two strangers, his pale face seemed to turn a shade paler. Why, it's Horne Fisher. And then, after a pause, he said in a low voice, I'm in the devil of a hole, Fisher. There does seem a bit of a mystery to be cleared up, observed the gentleman so addressed. It will never be cleared up, said the pale Simon. If anybody could clear it up, you could, but nobody could. I rather think I could, said another voice from outside the group, and they turned in surprise to realise that the man in the black robe had spoken again. You, said the colonel sharply, and how do you propose to play the detective? I do not propose to play the detective, answered the other, in a clear voice like a bell. I propose to play the magician, one of the magicians you show up in India, colonel. No one spoke for a moment, and then Horn Fisher surprised everybody by saying, Well, let's go upstairs, and this gentleman can have a try. He stopped Simon, who had an automatic finger on the button, saying, No, leave all the lights on. It's a sort of safeguard. The thing can't be taken away now, said Simon bitterly. It can be put back, replied Fisher. Twyford had already run upstairs for news of his vanishing nephew, and he received news from him in a way that at once puzzled and reassured him. On the floor above lay one of those large paper darts which boys throw at each other when the schoolmaster is out of the room. It had evidently been thrown in at the window, and on being unfolded displayed a scrawl of bad handwriting which ran, Dear Uncle, I'm all right. Meet you at the hotel later on. And then the signature. Insensibly comforted by this, the clergyman found his thoughts reverting voluntarily to his favourite relic, which came a good second in his sympathies to his favourite nephew, and before he knew where he was, he found himself encircled by the group discussing its loss, and more or less carried away on the current of their excitement. But an undercurrent of query continued to run in his mind, as to what had really happened to the boy, and what was the boy's exact definition of being all right. Meanwhile, Horne Fisher had considerably puzzled everybody with his new tone and attitude. He had talked to the Colonel about the military and mechanical arrangements, and displayed a remarkable knowledge both of the details of the discipline and the technicalities of electricity. He had talked to the clergyman and shown an equally surprising knowledge of the religious and historical interests involved in the relic. He had talked to the man who called himself a magician, and not only surprised but scandalised the company by an equally sympathetic familiarity with the most fantastic forms of oriental occultism and psychic experiment. And in this last and least respectable line of inquiry he was evidently prepared to go farthest. 
He openly encouraged the magician, and was plainly prepared to follow the wildest ways of investigation in which that magus might lead him. "'How would you begin now?' he inquired, with an anxious politeness that reduced the colonel to a congestion of rage. "'It is all a question of a force, of establishing communications for a force,' replied that adept affably, ignoring some military mutterings about the police force. It is what you in the West used to call animal magnetism, but it is much more than that. I better not say how much more. As to setting about it, the usual method is to throw some susceptible person into a trance, which serves as a sort of bridge or cord of communication, by which the force beyond can give him, as it were, an electric shock and awaken his higher senses. It opens the sleeping eye of the mind." I'm susceptible, said Fisher, either with simplicity or with a baffling irony. Why not open my mind's eye for me? My friend Harold March here will tell you I sometimes see things even in the dark. Nobody sees anything except in the dark, said the magician. Heavy clouds of sunset were closing round the wooden hut, enormous clouds of which only the corners could be seen in the little window, like purple horns and tails, almost as if some huge monsters were prowling round the place. But the purple was already deepening to dark grey. It would soon be night. Do not light the lamp, said the Magus with quiet authority, arresting a movement in that direction. I told you before that things happen only in the dark. How such a topsy-turvy scene ever came to be tolerated in the Colonel's office of all places was afterward a puzzle in the memory of many, including the Colonel. They recalled it like a sort of nightmare, like something they could not control. Perhaps there was really a magnetism about the mesmerist. Perhaps there was even more magnetism about the man mesmerized. Anyhow, the man was being mesmerized, for Horn Fisher had collapsed into a chair with his long limbs loose and sprawling and his eyes staring at vacancy. And the other man was mesmerizing him, making sweeping movements with his darkly draped arms as if with black wings. The colonel had passed the point of explosion, and he dimly realised that eccentric aristocrats are allowed their fling. He comforted himself, with the knowledge that he had already sent for the police, who would break up any such masquerade, and with lighting a cigar, the red end of which, in the gathering darkness, glowed with protest. Yes, I see pockets, the man in the trance was saying. I see many pockets, but they are all empty. No, I see one pocket that is not empty. There was a faint stir in the stillness, and the magician said, Can you see what is in the pocket? Yes, answered the other. There are two bright things. I think they are two bits of steel. One of the pieces of steel is bent or crooked. Have they been used in the removal of the relic from downstairs? Yes. There was another pause, and the inquirer added, Do you see anything of the relic itself? I see something shining on the floor, like the shadow or the ghost of it. It is over there, in the corner, beyond the desk. There was a movement of men turning, and then a sudden stillness, as of their stiffening, for over in the corner, on the wooden floor, there was really a round spot of pale light. It was the only spot of light in the room. The cigar had gone out. It points the way, came from the voice of the oracle. The spirits are pointing the way to penitence and urging the thief to restitution. I can see nothing more. His voice trailed off into a silence that lasted solidly for many minutes, like the long silence below when the theft had been committed. Then it was broken by the ring of metal on the floor and the sound of something spinning and falling like a tossed halfpenny. Light the lamp, cried Fisher in a loud and even jovial voice. Leaping to his feet with far less languor than usual. I must be going now, but I should like to see it before I go. Why, I came on purpose to see it. The lamp was lit, and he did see it, for St. Paul's penny was lying on the floor at his feet. Oh, as for that, explained Fisher, when he was entertaining March and Twyford at lunch about a month later, I merely wanted to play with the magician at his own game. I thought you meant to catch him in his own trap, said Twyford. I can't make head or tail of anything yet, but to my mind he was always the suspect. I don't think he was necessarily a thief in the vulgar sense. The police always seem to think that silver is stolen for the sake of silver. 
but a thing like that might well be stolen out of some religious mania. A runaway monk turned mystic might well want it for some mystical purpose. No, replied Fisher, the runaway monk is not a thief. At any rate, he is not the thief. And he's not altogether a liar, either. He said one true thing, at least, that night. And what was that? inquired March. He said it was all magnetism. As a matter of fact, it was done by means of a magnet. Then, seeing they still looked puzzled, he added, It was that toy magnet belonging to your nephew, Mr. Twyford. But I don't understand, objected March. If it was done with the schoolboy's magnet, I suppose it was done by the schoolboy. Well, replied Fisher reflectively, it rather depends which schoolboy. What on earth do you mean? The soul of the schoolboy is a curious thing, Fisher continued in a meditative manner. It can survive a great many things besides climbing out of a chimney. A man can grow grey in great campaigns and still have the soul of a schoolboy. A man can return with a great reputation from India and be put in charge of a great public treasure and still have the soul of a schoolboy waiting to be awakened by an accident. And it is ten times more so when to the schoolboy you add the sceptic who is generally a sort of stunted schoolboy. You said just now that things might be done by religious mania. Have you ever heard of irreligious mania? I assure you it exists very violently, especially in men who like showing up magicians in India. But here the sceptic had the temptation of showing up a much more tremendous sham nearer home. A light came into Harold March's eyes as he suddenly saw, as if afar off, the wider implication of the suggestion. But Twyford was still wrestling with one problem at a time. Do you really mean, he said, that Colonel Morris took the relic? He was the only person who could use the magnet, replied Fisher. In fact, your obliging nephew left him a number of things he could use. He had a ball of string, an instrument for making a hole in the wooden floor. I made a little play with that hole in the floor in my trance, by the way, with the lights left on below. It shone like a new shilling. Twyford suddenly bounded on his chair. But in that case, he cried in a new and altered voice, why then, of course, you said a piece of steel. I said there were two pieces of steel, said Fisher. The bent piece of steel was the boy's magnet. The other was the relic in the glass case. But that is silver, answered the archaeologist in a voice now almost unrecognisable. Oh, replied Fisher soothingly, I dare say it was painted with silver a little. There was a heavy silence, and at last Harold March said, But where is the real relic? Where it has been for five years, replied Horne Fisher, in the possession of a mad millionaire named Van Damme in Nebraska. There was a playful little photograph about him in a society paper the other day, mentioning his delusion, and saying he was always being taken in about relics. Harold March frowned at the tablecloth. Then, after an interval, he said, I think I understand your notion of how the thing was actually done. According to that, Morris just made a hole and fished it up with a magnet at the end of a string. Such a monkey trick looks like mere madness, but I suppose he was mad, partly with the boredom of watching over what he felt was a fraud, though he couldn't prove it. Then came a chance to prove it, to himself at least, and he had what he called fun with it. Yes, I think I see a lot of details now, but it's just the whole thing that knocks me. How did it all come to be like that? Fisher was looking at him with level lids and an immovable manner. Every precaution was taken, he said. The Duke carried the relic on his own person and locked it up in the case with his own hands. March was silent, but Twyford stammered, I don't understand you. You give me the creeps. Why don't you speak plainer? If I spoke plainer, you would understand me less, said Horne Fisher. All the same, I should try, said March, still without lifting his head. Oh, very well, replied Fisher with a sigh. The plain truth is, of course, that it's a bad business. Everybody knows it's a bad business who knows anything about it. But it's always happening, and in one way one can hardly blame them. They get stuck onto a foreign princess that's as stiff as a Dutch doll. And they have their fling. In this case, it was a pretty big fling. The face of the Reverend Thomas Twyford certainly suggested that he was a little out of his depth in the seas of truth. But as the other went on speaking vaguely, the old gentleman's features sharpened and set. 
If it were some decent morganatic affair, I wouldn't say, but he must have been a fool to throw away thousands on a woman like that. At the end it was sheer blackmail, but it's something that the old ass didn't get it out of the taxpayers. He could only get it out of the yank, and there you are. The Reverend Thomas Twyford had risen to his feet. Well, I'm glad my nephew had nothing to do with it, he said, and if that's what the world is like, I hope he will never have anything to do with it. I hope not, answered Hornfisher. No one knows so well as I do that one can have far too much to do with it. For Summers Minor had indeed nothing to do with it, and it is part of his higher significance that he has really nothing to do with the story or with any such stories. The boy went like a bullet through the tangle of this tale of crooked politics and crazy mockery, and came out on the other side pursuing his own unspoiled purposes. From the top of the chimney he climbed, he had caught sight of a new omnibus, whose colour and name he had never known, as a naturalist might see a new bird or a botanist a new flower, and he had been sufficiently enraptured in rushing after it and riding away upon that fairy ship. End of chapter The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton Recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 4 The Bottomless Well In an oasis or green island in the red and yellow seas of sand that stretch beyond Europe towards the sunrise, there can be found a rather fantastic contrast, which is none the less typical of such a place, since international treaties have made it an outpost of the British occupation. The site is famous among archaeologists for something that is hardly a monument, but merely a hole in the ground. But it is a round shaft like that of a well, and probably a part of some great irrigation works of remote and disputed date, perhaps more ancient than anything in that ancient land. There is a green fringe of palm and prickly pear round the black mouth of the well, but nothing of the upper masonry remains except two bulky and battered stones standing like pillars of a gateway of nowhere, in which some of the more transcendental archaeologists in certain moods at moonrise or sunset think they can trace the faint lines of figures or features of more than Babylonian monstrosity, while the more rationalistic archaeologists in the more rational hours of daylight see nothing but two shapeless rocks. It may have been noticed, however, that all Englishmen are not archaeologists. Many of those assembled in such a place for official and military purposes have hobbies other than archaeology. And it is a solemn fact that the English in this eastern exile have contrived to make a small golf links out of the green scrub and sand, with a comfortable clubhouse at one end of it and this primeval monument at the other. They did not actually use this archaic abyss as a bunker because it was by tradition unfathomable and even for practical purposes unfathomed. Any sporting projectile sent into it might be counted most literally as a lost ball. But they often sauntered round it in their interludes of talking and smoking cigarettes, and one of them had just come down from the clubhouse to find another gazing somewhat moodily into the well. Both the Englishmen wore light clothes and white pith helmets and puggrees, but there, for the most part, their resemblance ended and they both almost simultaneously said the same word, but they said it on two totally different notes of the voice. "'Have you heard the news?' asked the man from the club. "'Splendid!' "'Splendid!' replied the man by the well, but the first man pronounced the word as a young man might say it about a woman, and the second as an old man might say it about the weather, not without sincerity, but certainly without fervour. And in this the tone of the two men was sufficiently typical of them. The first, who was a certain Captain Boyle, was of a bold and boyish type, dark and with a sort of native heat in his face that did not belong to the atmosphere of the East, but rather to the ardours and ambitions of the West. The other was an older man, and certainly an older resident, a civilian official, Horn Fisher and his drooping eyelids and drooping light moustache, all the paradox of the Englishman in the East. He was much too hot to be anything but cool. Neither of them thought it necessary to mention what it was that was splendid. 
That would indeed have been superfluous conversation about something that everybody knew, the striking victory over a menacing combination of Turks and Arabs in the north, won by troops under the command of Lord Hastings, the veteran of so many striking victories, was already spread by the newspapers all over the empire, let alone to this small garrison so near the battlefield. Now, no other nation in the world could have done a thing like that, cried Captain Boyle emphatically. Hornfisher was still looking silently into the well. A moment later he answered, We certainly have the art of unmaking mistakes. That's where the poor old Prussians went wrong. They could only make mistakes and stick to them. There is really a certain talent in unmaking a mistake. What do you mean? asked Boyle. What mistakes? Well, everybody knows it looked like biting off more than he could chew, replied Hornfisher. It was a peculiarity of Mr. Fisher that he always said that everybody knew things which about one person in two million was ever allowed to hear of. And it was certainly jolly lucky that Travers turned up so well in the nick of time. Odd how often the right thing's been done for us by the second in command, even when a great man was first in command, like Colborne at Waterloo. It ought to add a whole province to the empire, observed the other. Well, I suppose the Zimmerns would have insisted on it as far as the canal, observed Fisher thoughtfully, though everybody knows adding provinces doesn't always pay much nowadays. Captain Boyle frowned in a slightly puzzled fashion. Being cloudily conscious of never having heard of the Zimmerns in his life, he could only remark stolidly, Well, one can't be a little Englander. Horn Fisher smiled, and he had a pleasant smile. Every man out here is a little Englander, he said. He wishes he were back in little England. I don't know what you're talking about, I'm afraid, said the younger man rather suspiciously. One would think you didn't really admire Hastings, or, or anything. I admire him no end, replied Fisher. He's by far the best man for this post. He understands the Muslims and can do anything with them. That's why I'm all against pushing Travers against him, merely because of this last affair. I really don't understand what you're driving at, said the other, frankly. Perhaps it isn't worth understanding, answered Fisher lightly. And anyhow, we needn't talk politics. Do you know the Arab legend about that well? I'm afraid I don't know much about Arab legends, said Boyle rather stiffly. That's rather a mistake, replied Fisher, especially from your point of view. Lord Hastings himself is an Arab legend. That is perhaps the very greatest thing he really is. If his reputation went, it would weaken us all over Asia and Africa. Well, the story about that hole in the ground that goes down nobody knows where has always fascinated me rather. It's Mohammedan in form now, but I shouldn't wonder if the tale is a long way older than Mohammed. It's all about somebody they call the Sultan Aladdin, not our friend of the lamp, of course, but rather like him in having to do with genii or giants or something of that sort. They say he commanded the giants to build him a sort of pagoda, rising higher and higher above all the stars. The utmost for the highest, as the people said when they built the Tower of Babel. But the builders of the Tower of Babel were quite modest and domestic people like mice compared with old Aladdin. They only wanted a tower that would reach heaven, a mere trifle. He wanted a tower that would pass heaven and rise above it, and go on rising for ever and ever. And Allah cast him down to earth with a thunderbolt, which sank into the earth, boring a hole deeper and deeper, till it made a well that was without a bottom, as the tower was to have been without a top. And down that inverted tower of darkness, the soul of the proud sultan is falling for ever and ever. What a queer chap you are, said Boyle. You talk as if a fellow could believe those fables. Perhaps I believe the moral and not the fable, answered Fisher. But here comes Lady Hastings. You know her, I think. The clubhouse on the golf links was used, of course, for many other purposes besides that of golf. It was the only social centre of the garrison beside the strictly military headquarters. It had a billiard room and a bar and even an excellent reference library for those officers who were so perverse as to take their profession seriously. Among these was the great general himself, whose head of silver and face of bronze, like that of a brazen eagle, were often to be found bent over the charts and folios of the library. The great Lord Hastings believed in science and study, as in other severe ideals of life, 
and had given much paternal advice on the point to young Boyle, whose appearances in that place of research were rather more intermittent. It was from one of these snatches of study that the young man had just come out through the glass doors of the library onto the golf links. But, above all, the club was so appointed as to serve the social conveniences of ladies at least as much as gentlemen, and Lady Hastings was able to play the Queen in such a society almost as much as in her own ballroom. She was eminently calculated, and, as some said, eminently inclined to play such a part. She was much younger than her husband, an attractive and sometimes dangerously attractive lady and Mr. Horne Fisher looked after her a little sardonically as she swept away with the young soldier. Then his rather dreary eye strayed to the green and prickly growths round the well, growths of that curious cactus formation in which one thick leaf grows directly out of the other without stalk or twig. It gave his fanciful mind a sinister feeling of a blind growth without shape or purpose. A flower or shrub in the west grows to the blossom which is its crown and its content. But this was as if hands could grow out of hands or legs grow out of legs in a nightmare. Always adding a province to the empire, he said with a smile, and then added more sadly, but I doubt if I was right after all. A strong but genial voice broke in on his meditations, and he looked up and smiled, seeing the face of an old friend. The voice was, indeed, rather more genial than the face, which was at the first glance decidedly grim. It was a typically legal face, with angular jaws and heavy, grizzled eyebrows, and it belonged to an eminently legal character, though he was now attached in a semi-military capacity to the police of that wild district. Cuthbert Grain was perhaps more of a criminologist than either a lawyer or a policeman, but in his more barbarous surroundings, he had proved successful in turning himself into a practical combination of all three. The discovery of a whole series of strange oriental crimes stood to his credit. But as few people were acquainted with or attracted to such a hobby or branch of knowledge, his intellectual life was somewhat solitary. Among the few exceptions was Horne Fisher, who had a curious capacity for talking to almost anybody about almost anything. Studying botany, or is it archaeology? inquired Grain. I shall never come to the end of your interests, Fisher. I should say that what you don't know isn't worth knowing. You're wrong, replied Fisher, with a very unusual abruptness and even bitterness. It's what I do know that isn't worth knowing. All the seamy side of things, all the secret reasons and rotten motives and bribery and blackmail they call politics. I needn't be so proud of having been down all these sewers that I should brag about it to the little boys in the street. What do you mean? What's the matter with you? asked his friend. I never knew you taken like this before. I'm ashamed of myself, replied Fisher. I've just been throwing cold water on the enthusiasms of a boy. Even that explanation is hardly exhaustive, observed the criminal expert. Damned newspaper nonsense the enthusiasms were, of course, continued Fisher. But I ought to know that at that age illusions can be ideals, and they're better than the reality, anyhow. But there is one very ugly responsibility about jolting a young man out of the rut of the most rotten ideal. And what may that be? inquired his friend. It's very apt to set him off with the same energy in a much worse direction, answered Fisher, a pretty endless sort of direction, a bottomless pit as deep as the bottomless well. Fisher did not see his friend until a fortnight later, when he found himself in the garden at the back of the clubhouse on the opposite side from the links, a garden heavily coloured and scented with sweet semi-tropical plants in the glow of a desert sunset. Two other men were with him, the third being the now celebrated second-in-command, familiar to everybody as Tom Travers, a lean, dark man who looked older than his years, with a furrow in his brow and something morose about the very shape of his black moustache. They had just been served with black coffee by the Arab, now officiating as the temporary servant of the club, though he was a figure already familiar and even famous as the old servant of the general. He went by the name of Said and was notable among other Semites for that unnatural length of his yellow face and height of his narrow forehead which is sometimes seen among them, 
and gave an irrational impression of something sinister, in spite of his agreeable smile. "'I never felt as if I could quite trust that fellow,' said Grain, when the man had gone away. "'It's very unjust, I take it, for he was certainly devoted to Hastings, and saved his life, they say. But Arabs are often like that, loyal to one man. I can't help feeling he might cut anybody else's throat, and even do it treacherously.' Well, said Travers, with a rather sour smile, so long as he leaves Hastings alone, the world won't mind much. There was a rather embarrassing silence, full of memories of the great battle, and then Horn Fisher said, quietly, The newspapers aren't the world, Tom. Don't worry about them. Everybody in your world knows the truth well enough. I think we'd better not talk about the general just now, remarked Grain, for he's just coming out of the club. He's not coming here, said Fisher. He's only seeing his wife to the car. As he spoke, indeed, the lady came out to the steps of the club, followed by her husband, who then went swiftly in front of her to open the garden gate. As he did so, she turned back and spoke for a moment to a solitary man still sitting in a cane chair in the shadow of the doorway. The only man left in the deserted club, save for the three that lingered in the garden. Fisher peered for a moment into the shadow and saw that it was Captain Boyle. The next moment, rather to their surprise, the general reappeared and, remounting the steps, spoke a word or two to Boyle in his turn. Then he signalled to Said, who hurried up with two cups of coffee, and the two men re-entered the club, each carrying his cup in his hand. The next moment a gleam of white light in the growing darkness showed that the electric lamps had been turned on in the library beyond. Coffee and scientific researches, said Travers grimly. All the luxuries of learning and theoretical research. Well, I must be going, for I have my work to do as well. And he got up rather stiffly, saluted his companions, and strode away into the dusk. I only hope Boyle is sticking to scientific researches, said Horn Fisher. I'm not very comfortable about him myself, but let's talk about something else. They talked about something else longer than they probably imagined, until the tropical night had come and a splendid moon painted the whole scene with silver. But before it was bright enough to see by, Fisher had already noted that the lights in the library had been abruptly extinguished. He waited for the two men to come out by the garden entrance, but nobody came. They must have gone for a stroll on the links, he said. Very possibly, replied Grain, it's going to be a beautiful night. A moment or two after he had spoken, they heard a voice hailing them out of the shadow of the clubhouse, and were astonished to perceive Travers hurrying towards them, calling out as he came, I shall want your help, you fellows, he cried. There's something pretty bad out on the links. They found themselves plunging through the club's smoking room and the library beyond, in complete darkness, mental as well as material. But Horn Fisher, in spite of his affectation of indifference, was a person of a curious and almost transcendental sensibility to atmospheres, and he already felt the presence of something more than an accident. He collided with a piece of furniture in the library, and almost shuddered with the shock, for the thing moved as he could never have fancied a piece of furniture moving. It seemed to move like a living thing, yielding and yet striking back. The next moment Grain had turned on the lights, and he saw he had only stumbled against one of the revolving bookstands that had swung round and struck him. But his involuntary recoil had revealed to him his own subconscious sense of something mysterious and monstrous. There were several of these revolving bookcases standing here and there about the library. On one of them stood the two cups of coffee, and on another a large open book. It was Budge's book on Egyptian hieroglyphics, with coloured plates of strange birds and gods, and even as he rushed past he was conscious of something odd about the fact that this, and not any work of military science, should be open in that place at that moment. He was even conscious of the gap in the well-lined bookshelf from which it had been taken, and it seemed almost to gape at him in an ugly fashion, like a gap in the teeth of some sinister face. A run brought them in a few minutes to the other side of the ground, in front of the bottomless well, and a few yards from it, in a moonlight almost as broad as daylight, they saw what they had come to see. The great Lord Hastings lay prone on his face in a posture in which there was a touch of something strange and stiff, 
with one elbow erect above his body, the arm being doubled, and his big bony hand clutching the rank and ragged glass. A few feet away was Boyle, almost as motionless, supported on his hands and knees, and staring at the body. It might have been no more than shock and accident, but there was something ungainly and unnatural about the quadrupedal posture and the gaping face. It was as if his reason had fled from him. Behind there was nothing but the clear blue southern sky and the beginning of the desert, except for the two great broken stones in front of the well. And it was in such a light and atmosphere that men could fancy they traced in them enormous and evil faces looking down. Horn Fisher stooped and touched the strong hand that was still clutching the grass, and it was as cold as a stone. He knelt by the body and was busy for a moment applying other tests. Then he rose again and said with a sort of confident despair, Lord Hastings is dead. There was a stony silence, and then Travers remarked gruffly, This is your department, Grain. I'll leave you to question Captain Boyle. I can make no sense of what he says. Boyle had pulled himself together and risen to his feet, but his face still wore an awful expression, making it like a new mask or the face of another man. I was looking at the well, he said, and when I turned he'd fallen down. Grain's face was very dark. As you say, this is my affair, he said. I must first ask you to help me carry him to the library and let me examine things thoroughly. When they deposited the body in the library, Grain turned to Fisher and said, in a voice that had recovered its fullness and confidence, I'm going to lock myself in and make a thorough examination first. I look to you to keep in touch with the others and make a preliminary examination of Boyle. I will talk to him later. And just telephone to headquarters for a policeman and let him come here at once and stand by till I want him. Without more words, the great criminal investigator went into the lighted library, shutting the door behind him, and Fisher, without replying, turned and began to talk quietly to Travers. It is curious, he said, that the thing should happen just in front of that place. It would certainly be very curious, replied Travers, if the place played any part in it. I think, replied Fisher, that the part it didn't play is more curious still. And with these apparently meaningless words, he turned to the shaken Boyle, and, taking his arm, began to walk him up and down in the moonlight, talking in low tones. Dawn had begun to break abrupt and white, when Cuthbert Grain turned out the lights in the library, and came out onto the links. Fisher was lounging about alone in his listless fashion, but the police messenger for whom he had sent was standing at attention in the background. I sent Boyle off with Travers, observed Fisher carelessly. He'll look after him, and he'd better have some sleep, anyhow. Did you get anything out of him, asked Grain? Did he tell you what he and Hastings were doing? Yes, answered Fisher. He gave me a pretty clear account, after all. He said that after Lady Hastings went off in the car, the General asked him to take coffee with him in the library, and look up a point about local antiquities. He himself was beginning to look for Budge's book in one of the revolving bookstands when the general found it in one of the bookshelves on the wall. After looking at some of the plates, they went out, it would seem rather abruptly, onto the links and walked toward the old well. And while Boyle was looking into it, he heard a thud behind him, and turned round to find the general lying as we found him. He himself dropped on his knees to examine the body, and then was paralysed with a sort of terror, and could not come nearer to it or touch it. But I think very little of that. People caught in a real shock of surprise are sometimes found in the queerest postures. Grain wore a grim smile of attention, and said, after a short silence, Well, he hasn't told you many lies. It's really a creditably clear and consistent account of what happened, with everything of importance left out. Have you discovered anything in there? asked Fisher. I have discovered everything, answered Grain. Fisher maintained a somewhat gloomy silence as the other resumed his explanation in quiet and assured tones. You were quite right, Fisher, when you said that young fellow was in danger of going down dark ways toward the pit. Whether or no, as you fancied, the jolt you gave to his view of the general had anything to do with it, 
He has not been treating the general well for some time. It's an unpleasant business, and I don't want to dwell on it, but it's pretty plain that his wife was not treating him well either. I don't know how far it went, but it went as far as concealment anyhow, for when Lady Hastings spoke to Boyle, it was to tell him she had hidden a note in the budge book in the library. The general overheard, or came somehow to know, and he went straight to the book and found it. He confronted Boyle with it, and they had a scene, of course. And Boyle was confronted with something else. He was confronted with an awful alternative, in which the life of one old man meant ruin, and his death meant triumph and even happiness. Well, observed Fisher at last, I don't blame him for not telling you the woman's part of the story, but how do you know about the letter? I found it on the general's body, answered Grayne, but I found worse things than that. The body had stiffened in the way rather peculiar to poisons of a certain Asiatic sort. Then I examined the coffee cups, and I knew enough chemistry to find poison in the dregs of one of them. Now, the general went straight to the bookcase, leaving his cup of coffee on the bookstand in the middle of the room. While his back was turned, and Boyle was pretending to examine the bookstand, he was left alone with the coffee cup. The poison takes about ten minutes to act, and ten minutes walk would bring them to the bottomless well. Yes, remarked Fisher, and what about the bottomless well? What has the bottomless well got to do with it? asked his friend. It has nothing to do with it, replied Fisher. That is what I find utterly confounding and incredible. And why should that particular hole in the ground have anything to do with it? It is a particular hole in your case, said Fisher, but I won't insist on that just now. By the way, there is another thing I ought to tell you. I said I sent Boyle away in charge of Travers. It would be just as true to say I sent Travers in charge of Boyle. You don't mean to say you suspect Tom Travers, cried the other. He was a deal bitterer against the general than Boyle ever was, observed Horn Fisher with a curious indifference. Man, you're not saying what you mean, cried Grain. I tell you I found the poison in one of the coffee cups. There was always Said, of course, added Fisher, either of hatred or hire. We agreed he was capable of almost anything. And we agreed he was incapable of hurting his master, retorted Grain. Well, well, said Fisher amiably, I dare say you're right. But I should just like to have a look at the library and the coffee cups. He passed inside while Grain turned to the policeman in attendance and handed him a scribbled note to be telegraphed from headquarters. The man saluted and hurried off, and Grain, following his friend into the library, found him beside the bookstand in the middle of the room, on which were the empty cups. This is where Boyle looked for Budge, or pretended to look for him, according to your account, he said. As Fisher spoke, he bent down in a half-crouching attitude, to look at the volumes in the low revolving shelf, for the whole bookstand was not much higher than an ordinary table. The next moment he sprang up as if he had been stung. Oh, my God, he cried. Very few people, if any, have ever seen Mr. Horn Fisher behave as he behaved just then. He flashed a glance at the door, saw that the open window was nearer, and went out of it with a flying leap as if over a hurdle, and went racing across the turf in the track of the disappearing policeman. Grain, who stood staring after him, soon saw his tall, loose figure returning, restored to all its normal limpness of air and leisure. He was fanning himself slowly with a piece of paper, the telegram he had so violently intercepted. Lucky I stopped that, he observed. We must keep this affair as quiet as death. Hastings must die of apoplexy or heart disease. What on earth is the trouble? demanded the other investigator. The trouble is, said Fisher, that in a few days we should have had a very agreeable alternative of hanging an innocent man or knocking the British Empire to hell. Do you mean to say, asked Grain, that this infernal crime is not to be punished? Fisher looked at him steadily. It is already punished, he said. After a moment's pause, he went on. You reconstructed the crime with admirable skill, old chap, and nearly all you said was true. Two men with two coffee cups did go into the library, and did put their cups on the bookstand, and did go together to the well. 
and one of them was a murderer and had put poison in the other's cup. But it was not done while Boyle was looking at the revolving bookcase. He did look at it, though, searching for the budge book with the note in it, but I fancy that Hastings had already moved it to the shelves on the wall. It was part of that grim game that he should find it first. Now, how does a man search a revolving bookcase? He does not generally hop all round it in a squatting attitude, like a frog. He simply gives it a touch and makes it revolve. He was frowning at the floor as he spoke, and there was a light under his heavy lids that was not often seen there. The mysticism that was buried deep under all the cynicism of his experience was awake and moving in the depths. His voice took unexpected turns and inflections, almost as if two men were speaking. That was what Boyle did. He barely touched the thing, and it went round as easily as the world goes round. Yes, very much as the world goes round, for the hand that turned it was not his. God, who turns the wheel of all the stars, touched that wheel and brought it full circle, that his dreadful justice might return. I'm beginning, said Grain slowly, to have some hazy and horrible idea of what you mean. It's very simple, said Fisher. When Boyle straightened himself from his stooping posture, something had happened which he had not noticed, which his enemy had not noticed, which nobody had noticed. The two coffee-cups had exactly changed places. The rocky face of Grain seemed to have sustained a shock in silence. Not a line of it altered, but his voice, when it came out, was unexpectedly weakened. I see what you mean, he said, and, as you say, the less said about it the better. It was not the lover who tried to get rid of the husband, but the other thing. And a tale like that, about a man like that, would ruin us here. Had you any guess of this at the start? The bottomless well, as I told you, answered Fisher quietly, that was what stumped me from the start, not because it had anything to do with it, but because it had nothing to do with it. He paused a moment, as if choosing an approach, and then went on, When a man knows his enemy will be dead in ten minutes, and takes him to the edge of an unfathomable pit, he means to throw his body into it. What else should he do? A born fool would have the sense to do it, and Boyle is not a born fool. Well, why did not Boyle do it? The more I thought of it, the more I suspected that there was some mistake in the murder, so to speak. Somebody had taken somebody there to throw him in, and yet he was not thrown in. I had already an ugly, unformed idea of some substitution or reversal of parts. Then I stooped to turn the bookshelf myself, by accident, and I instantly knew everything, for I saw the two cups revolve once more like moons in the sky. After a pause, Cuthbert Grain said, And what are we to say to the newspapers? My friend Harold March is coming along from Cairo today, said Fisher. He's a very brilliant and successful journalist. But for all that, he's a thoroughly honourable man, so you must not tell him the truth. Half an hour later, Fisher was again walking to and fro in front of the clubhouse with Captain Boyle. The latter, by this time, with a very buffeted and bewildered air, perhaps a sadder and a wiser man. What about me, then? he was saying. Am I cleared? Am I not going to be cleared? I believe and hope, answered Fisher, that you are not going to be suspected, but you are certainly not going to be cleared. There must be no suspicion against him, and therefore no suspicion against you. Any suspicion against him, let alone such a story against him, would knock us endways from Malta to Mandalay. He was a hero as well as a holy terror among the Muslims. Indeed, you might almost call him a Muslim hero in the English service. Of course he got on with them, partly because of his own little dose of Eastern blood. He got it from his mother, the dancer from Damascus. Everybody knows that. Oh, repeated Boyle mechanically, staring at him with round eyes. Everybody knows that. I dare say there was a touch of it in his jealousy and ferocious vengeance, went on Fisher. But for all that, the crime would ruin us among the Arabs, all the more because it was something like a crime against hospitality. It's been hateful for you, and it's pretty horrid for me. But there are some things that damn well can't be done, and while I'm alive, that's one of them. 
What do you mean? asked Boyle, glancing at him curiously. Why should you, of all people, be so passionate about it? Horne Fisher looked at the young man with a baffling expression. I suppose, he said, it's because I'm a little Englander. I can never make out what you mean by that sort of thing, answered Boyle doubtfully. Do you think England is so little as all that, said Fisher, with a warmth in his cold voice, that it can't hold a man across a few thousand miles? You lectured me with a lot of ideal patriotism, my young friend, but it's practical patriotism now for you and me, with no lies to help it. You talked as if everything always went right with us, all over the world, in a triumphant crescendo culminating in Hastings. I tell you, everything has gone wrong with us here, except Hastings. He was the one name we had left to conjure with, and that mustn't go as well. No, by God, it's bad enough that a gang of infernal Jews should plant us here, where there's no earthly English interest to serve, and all hell beating up against us, simply because Nosy Zimmern has lent money to half the cabinet. It's bad enough that an old pawnbroker from Baghdad should make us fight his battles. We can't fight with our right hand cut off. Our one score was Hastings and his victory, which was really somebody else's victory. Tom Travers has to suffer, and so have you. Then, after a moment's silence, he pointed toward the bottomless well and said, in a quieter tone, I told you that I didn't believe in the philosophy of the Tower of Aladdin. I don't believe in the empire growing until it reaches the sky. I don't believe in the Union Jack going up eternally like the Tower. But if you think I'm going to let the Union Jack go down and down eternally, like the bottomless well, down into the blackness of the bottomless pit, down in defeat and derision, amid the jeers of the very Jews who have sucked us dry, no, I won't, and that's flat. Not if the Chancellor were blackmailed by twenty millionaires with their gutter rags. Not if the Prime Minister married twenty Yankee Jewesses. Not if Woodville and Carstairs had shares in twenty swindling mines. If the thing is really tottering, God help it, it mustn't be we who tip it over. Boyle was regarding him with a bewilderment that was almost fear, and had even a touch of distaste. Somehow, he said, there seems to be something rather horrid about the things you know. There is, replied Horne Fisher. I am not at all pleased with my small stock of knowledge and reflection. But as it is partly responsible for your not being hanged, I don't know that you need complain of it and as if a little ashamed of his first boast, he turned and strolled away toward the bottomless well. End of chapter. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.